0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Oracle Cards, runestones, crystals, how dare you! The figure, for a figure is all that it is, beneath the layers of heavy robes, the thick cowl, and the veil. The figure is visibly affronted. He, or she, draws itself up to its full height and squares its shoulders. I am no mere fairground reader of leaves. I do not cast lots and play games of chance with the fates. I am a vessel for the divine. I open myself to the gods themselves and their words, their truths, pour forth from me. If you are here for games then be gone. If you seek truth, ask your questions of this oracle truth you shall have, for better or for worse. Have you ever noticed that once adventures in dungeons and dragons go beyond the simple plunge into the dungeon, kill the dragon, and steal the treasure of the weak, the heroes of the story spend a lot of time in libraries? It's like they're the characters in some educational PBS cartoon. The kind you watched because the good cartoons like G.I. Joe and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were over. If there's anything you don't know, go to the library. Nowadays, that doesn't seem strange at all. Well, maybe it does a little. The concept of library has sort of been replaced with, look it up in the Wikipedias. But come on. D&D takes place in a time before the internet. Before you could just pluck the answers magically out of thin air where they come from some all-knowing, omnipresent source provided you had the right tools and you know how to check source documents to make sure the answer is solid. That's real life. But in a fantasy world, libraries are where you have to go. And sure, Gandalf went to the library when he was trying to figure out if the magical ring Bilbo had was evil. I mean, he had to be sure. Just because it was acquired under mysterious circumstances from a sinister creature, And just because Bilbo lied about the ring. And just because Bilbo seemed to be living an awful long time. And just because he was becoming unhinged and manic. And just because the ring was very magical. And just because a fiery eye filled Gandalf's brain and taunted him when he almost touched the ring. And just because it matched the description of a magical ring that had once kind of destroyed the entire world. That didn't mean the ring was evil. Gandalf had to be sure. But the thing is, d d is a fantasy world. And in a lot of ways, it's not really a medieval world the way we often think it is. It has some medieval elements, sure. But it's more like if you took the medieval world and smashed it into the pre-medieval ancient world. Culturally, the world of d is like ancient Greece meets the Frankish Empire. And when an ancient Greek needed to know something, he didn't scurry off to a library. I mean, sometimes he did, but often he scurried to a priest. Take, for example, Leonidas I, warrior king of Sparta. He got a letter from basically all of Greece asking him to take his army and defend Greece from the entire Persian Empire, because apparently all of it was attacking all at once. And so, he went to visit the Oracle at Delphi. And she did a naked, smoky, striptease dance, and eventually said that either Leonidas would die fighting the Persians, or Sparta would be laid to waste by the Persians. And so, Leonidas went off with just 300 naked men to fight a bunch of Persian mutants using the power of advanced film editing techniques like ramping that they totally ripped off from the Wachowski brothers in an orgy of homoerotic bullet-time sequences. At least, that's how Zack Snyder depicted it in his 2006 film 300. But that may not be entirely historically accurate. First of all, it should be noted that there weren't just 300 Spartans. There were 300 Spartans and approximately 15,000 soldiers from Athens and other Greek city states. Leonidas had been selected to lead a coalition of Greek forces to slow the advance of the Persian troops so that Athens could build a navy. Why? Well, Leonidas was selected because the Athenian soldiers wouldn't follow anyone else. They wanted the best. And the Athenians were building a navy because the oracle at Delphi had told them to do so. That was before the oracle told Leonidas that either Sparta was going to mourn a king, or everyone was going to mourn Sparta. Which brings us to the other major historical inaccuracy. Leonidas probably didn't get to watch the smoky striptease dance. That was done in private. Well, it probably wasn't a striptease dance, but it was a trance, and it was very smoky. The smoke in that scene was probably the most historically accurate part of that movie. So who is the oracle at Delphi? And more generally, what is an oracle? We tend to think of oracles as people who predict the future, And we sort of lump them in with seers, astrologers, diviners, crystal-ball-reading gypsies, I Ching readers, and tarot readers. But there's actually an important difference between all of those people and an oracle. They all try to predict the future, but oracles are special. Most seers, that is, most folks who predict the future, do so by interpreting signs and portents. Basically, the logic runs something like this. Everything in the universe is interconnected by mystic forces. Gods, destiny, universal mystical laws, whatever. So if you pay attention to minor details, those details might clue you in as to how those gods or destinies or mystical laws are moving. And this is where we get all of the famous forms of divination. And there have been a lot of forms of this sort of interpretive divination. Sure, you have your tarot cards and your rune stones and your I Ching and chicken entrails and turtle shells and watching the stars and paying attention to momentous events and so on. But, if you want to get technical, and we always do here at Word of the Week, some scholars have proposed dividing divination into four different categories. You've got your omens, which is just paying attention to special events. You've got your sortilege, which is using some sort of randomized tool like cards or stones or coins. You've got augury, which involves using tools or rituals to answer specific questions. And you've got spontaneous divination, which is basically just having the answer pop into someone's head. Seers, in general, don't need any specific talents. You learn how to read runes or understand the stars or cut open a chicken and interpret what is going on in their guts and you can predict the future. In theory, there is no magic to it. Or rather, all of the magic is external. It's part of the magic of the universe that that stuff works. But oracles are different. Oracles receive their answers spontaneously through a direct connection with mystical forces, usually the gods. They are spontaneous diviners. And while rituals may be involved, there is something special about the oracle. They have a mystical connection. In fact, in most cases, the belief was that oracles were mediums. They were invokers. Those fancy words actually have very similar meanings. A medium is someone who acts as a vessel or translator for a supernatural force. Whoopi Goldberg, in Ghost, was a medium. She could hear the ghosts and could tell living people what those ghosts were saying. It's like being a supernatural United Nations translator. An invoker is someone who calls a mystical force into themselves. Basically, through some sort of trance or ritual, the invoker allows some sort of spirit or divine force to occupy their body and speak through them. By the way, word nerds, You can contrast this with evocation. Evocation is calling a force or spirit away. The ancient Romans were big into evocation. Before they attacked a city or army, they would attempt to evoke the gods. Basically, they would call upon the gods that were protecting the city or army they wanted to attack and try to draw the divine favor away from their intended victim. Invocation and evocation come from the same root word, vocare, meaning to call upon. Invocation means to call into, evocation means to call away. And that brings us back to the smoke. We realize that it's kind of a weird thing to fixate upon. The historical accuracy of the smoke and a brief striptease scene from a ten-year-old film about oiled shirtless men fighting mutants and ninjas in ancient Greece but the smoke is really important. Let's talk about the Pythia. Who were the Pythia? She was a naked, smoke-dancing lady. Oh, okay, okay, all right, we'll let it drop. The Pythia was the high priestess of Pytho, the sanctuary of the Delphinians, the priests of Delphi, and Delphi was a pretty important place to the ancient Greeks. It was the center of the world. Literally. Or so they thought. Let's dispel some confusion first. Pytho and Delphi were the same place. It was originally called Pytho because Apollo killed a magical snake there. Well, the myth claims that Python was an earth dragon, but it was basically a snake. And Python was guarding Amphalos, a mystical stone whose name means navel. Yes, Apollo the sun god killed a dragon so that he could claim the Earth's belly button. And how did the Greeks know where the belly button was? Well, Zeus figured it out. He released two eagles in two different directions to fly around the world. And where they met... That must be the center of the world. Pytho, Delphi, Amphalos. At Delphi, a temple was raised to Apollo. And that temple became home to the Pythia. The Pythia was a priestess who would enter a trance, and then the prophecies of the gods would come out of her mouth, usually poetically and cryptically. The way it worked was this. The Pythia would sacrifice a goat. The gods dug sacrifices. Sacrificing a goat was basically just telling your iPhone, Siri, call Apollo at home. Then she would bathe in the Castalian spring. And then she descended into the Aditon, a chamber deep in the temple with a chasm in the middle. And it was filled with the fumes of burning barley and laurel. And eventually she would fall into a trance and then she would start spewing prophecies. What's interesting, though, is that Pytho is pretty volcanically active. Two major faults meet basically under the temple, which actually kind of serves as a testament to the idea that it's the belly button of our planet when you think about it. But a lot of fumes come out of volcanically active chasms, especially sulfur. And it turns out that the Castalian spring contains a lot of ethylene. And ethylene is basically a sort of alcohol that has funny effects on the human brain. So there might be a good reason why the Pythia wandered out of this whole process spewing prophecy. Now, the Pythia, the oracle at Delphi, was not the only oracle in the world. Lots of cultures had oracular traditions. In ancient India, people consulted Asharira Vani, whose name means voice from the sky. And oracles figure in many of the stories from the Ramayana and Mahabharata epics. It is said that oracles guided the founding of Tenochtitlan at Lake Texcoco, which became the capital of the Mexican Empire in the 1400s. The Igbo of Nigeria had two famous oracles that were consulted up until the 1900s when they were driven out by colonial authorities from Europe. Almost every major and minor civilization on Earth has oracular traditions. But the oracle at Delphi may be unique in that she may actually be the only oracle pronounced accurate by rigorous scientific standards and got a testimonial from a king. Well, ancient rigorous scientific standards. See, there was a king named Croesus who pretty much conquered the ancient world, at least as far as the Greeks and their neighbors knew it. According to the writings of Herodotus around 450 BCE, Croesus wanted to know which oracle was the best. So he sent messengers to all of the major oracles of the time and they asked, What is King Croesus doing right now at this moment? According to Herodotus, only the oracle at Delphi got it right. At the time of the question, he was making tortoise soup. So, later on, During a military campaign, Herodotus consulted the Oracle at Delphi and asked whether his conquest would be successful. She said, if you attack, the great empire will fall. So attack he did, and he lost, and his empire fell, because that is how the Oracle at Delphi rolled. For another example, When the Athenians learned that Persia was going to attack, before Leonidas got involved, she told them, you must hide behind walls of wood, and from there you will be victorious. The Athenians took walls of wood to mean ships. That's why they were delaying the Persians, so they could build a navy. How did the story end? Well, the movie shows bits of it. Leonidas's troops were betrayed while holding a narrow pass in Thermopylae. Persian troops used a secret path to attack the Spartan line from behind. Leonidas learned of the treachery just in time to send the Athenians home, and he and his 300 Spartans became a speed bump. The Persians pressed on to Athens, which had been evacuated, and they burned most of the city. The Athenians, including their newly built navy, held out on the island of Salamis. The Greeks' smaller, maneuverable ships were able to sail circles around the Persian navy which couldn't bring its full force to bear in the narrow straits around the island. And so, Leonidas died, and Sparta mourned their king, but not their city. And the Athenians hid behind the wall of their navy and found victory. So maybe Croesus' endorsement Wasn't so far off the mark. And how can you use all of this in your game? Well, here's the funny thing. There's all these spells on the cleric spell list that basically boil down to various forms of divination. And the thing is, they tend to just sit there, waiting for the PCs to use them. Rarely does the GM plant a 7th level cleric who can cast Contact Other Plane in a place like Delphi where he or she becomes the consultant to the leaders of the world. Sure, such high level clerics should be rare, but that rareness makes them valuable, famous even. And why can't the PCs consult Oracles and Diviners? Why do they spend so much time reading musty books instead of accessing the fantasy internet? Maybe those spells aren't for PCs as much as they are for world building and storytelling. After all, the way the oracle at Delphi handled the whole Persian thing, it was half a riddle and half a really powerful emotional choice. Hide behind walls of wood for victory? Your city will mourn you or you will see your city ruined? It's pretty cool stuff. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by The Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at TheAngryGM.com and MadAdventurers.com.